Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Need expert advice on your family's health? Speak to us today at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Let's meet our panel this morning. Louise Byrne is a political correspondent with the Irish Mirror. John O'Brennan is Professor of European Politics at Maynooth University. Fintan Drury is the CEO of Platinum One and a columnist with The Currency and also Fintan, ex-member of the RTE board and an ex-RTE... Uh, I even was chairman. Chairman, I, I, beg, I beg your pardon. Okay. <laughs> and Alison Cummins is a, a journalist. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Louise, just before we talk about the RT story, just for people who might have uh, missed the statement that was put out yesterday afternoon, can you just carefully uh, tell us what we learned from that statement from the DG? Yes, this was a statement yesterday afternoon from DG Kevin Backhurst and I suppose he had come under significant pressure over the last number of days to reveal details of exit packages given to former RT employees and that really started from and stemmed from his admission at the Rock This Media Committee on Wednesday that Breed O'Keefe, the RT his formal chief financial officer received an exit package of €450,000 when she left the broadcaster. So there was a lot of questions over other people. And in a statement yesterday afternoon, Mr. Backers confirmed that Geraldine O'Leary, who's the former director of commercial, and Paula Maluli, who's the former head of legal affairs, neither of them received exit payments. So there have been questions over what they got. Richard Co- Rory Coveney, I beg your pardon, he was obviously the director of strategy. He resigned, we believed, from that role in July. Now, again, it re- was revealed during the Oireachtas Media Committee on Wednesday that there was some sort of exit payment there. Mr. Backers told TDs and senators he couldn't get into it, but he did seek fresh legal advice. So what he said last night was he stood down from his role, Rory Coveney, and this enabled the beginning of the restructuring of the leadership team and the suppression of his role. Responsibility for strategy has passed to Adrian Lynch with no additional compensation. So Rory's role became redundant and exit payment was offered and accepted by Rory with no backfill being made. Um, RTE will recoup that payment by July of this year. So that line without really confirming it, Mr. Backhurst kind of saying that he received one year's salary to leave the, na- the national Allowing broadcaster. To speculate that. And, exactly. And, and that and, is... And, and again, nobody knows exactly what Rory Coveney's salary was either, but they are kind of by a process of looking at executive salaries are speculating again that it was in the region of 200,000. Exactly. So no real confirmation from Mr. Backhurst and I suppose he's being careful for legal reasons. Another kind of legal obstacle that he has thrown up is Richard Collins, another former chief financial officer. And again, he came under pressure on Wednesday at the Oireachtas Media Committee to reveal how much he got. But Mr. Backhurst saying yesterday that he, Mr. Collins departed RTE by mutual agreement with a binding confidentiality clause that was agreed by both sides. In the interest of fairness and respect, this cannot be breached. So I think there's going to be real questions for Kevin Backhurst over the next couple of weeks about what kind of deal was struck with Richard Collins. Was any kind of deal struck? Was there compensation? We still don't really know. So I think, you know, it's interesting for Kevin Backhurst because for such a long time he was removed from all these controversies. They were all kind of done under the old guard. He was trying to draw a line in the sand. And now we know that some kind of deals were struck under his tenure. So a lot of pressure on Mr. Backhurst will be coming over the next couple of weeks and days to kind of find out what kind of packages were offered, why these were offered, and is it the last of them or will we be seeing a lot more? Okay. Um, Fintan, you picked... uh, So look, I mean, you could pick any of the front pages today. You picked the the Sunday Times, John Mooney and Bo Donnelly story. But anyway, your, your perspective on this... 
My perspective on it hasn't really changed in the last number of months. Um, you know, this is this story was described in the Irish Times on Friday as the biggest story of the week. In terms of media coverage today, it would seem that that's accurate, but but it's absolutely not, and it should not be the dominant story of this week in terms of thing, other things that are happening nationally and other things that are even more serious that are happening internationally. But even if you look at it from... I suppose, the, if, like, what the most important story of the week isn't always the well, story that people are most interested in. Well, like, I, clearly, I, this people feel some kind of visceral uh, anger around this story, even if there are more important things happening in the world. I understand that and accept that 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 the Irish Times, in reflecting uh, on it as such, is reflecting what the public interest is, and that is then Matt. Pardon. Or the, or the, I beg your pardon, the interest of the public, correct. And that's then manifest in how uh, we see this morning's newspapers. But, you know, we have to see this in the context of Maeve Sheehan writes two pieces in the Sunday Independent this morning. One is about the, the new battle on the children's hospital. I mean, if we're talking numbers... And we'll come to that. Yeah, we'll but if we're that. talking numbers and numbers from the public purse... Whatever has happened in RTE, and and it is a serious issue and it needs to be tackled for a whole set of different reasons, it needs to be tackled. But the numbers need to be in, seen in the context of the Children's Hospital. Okay. And, and also another story that Maeve Sheehan has in the Sunday Independent this morning, which is about... We will St. John of God. Okay, we'll come to those. I don't. I don't want to get into waterboatery at this stage. But can I, can I ask you a question then, as somebody who has been the chairman of the board here, as somebody who who is in business and manages business, is this, in a way, RTE management being and the board being hoist by their own petard here because they have let this drag on for so long because. It does seem that there is an appetite among politicians to end it. They, you, we keep hearing from the people on these committees. We want to write a report. We want to get on with it. Just, just, just lay it all out there. But it just, it's, it seems to every time it threatens. But I to, don't believe there's an to, appetite amongst to, politicians to end it. But there's a very significant uh, political value in keeping this story running, in keeping committees fed with uh, tasty headlines and with uh, doing their job. But they are. They are engaged in political activity when the reason RTE is in the position it is in, the reason these problems have manifested themselves, is because of political neglect. Generation after generation of legislators has neglected to address what we want and what we need from a public service broadcaster. No public service broadcaster doing public service broadcasting is thinking about putting on a musical show and touring it around the country or having it in the Point Depot. They're just not going to do that because that's not what public service broadcasting in, in its essence is about. Why does that then emerge within RTE? It emerges within RTE because RTE has been allowed to evolve into this potpourri of public service broadcasting, entertainment, all sorts of other bits and bobs, responsible for the concert orchestra, for the orchestras, responsible for all sorts of things. And 
the pressure, suppose, yeah, the pressure kind of a repository of the national culture yeah, in, in, in a way. Yeah, which okay, is, which is fine. Okay, okay. But, but, but then let the politicians recognise they have to solve it. John O'Brien, you're shaking your head there when Fintan was blaming the politicians for the things that happened. Yeah, at RTE. least in the initial. Uh, part of Finton's remarks, yes, because I don't think this is just about public neglect. I think he's right that the lack of a long-term strategy for public sector broadcasting in Ireland is part of the issue. But let's be honest here. This is about governance and it's about honesty. And when the Director General had to come back into the Oireachtas this week and answer questions... I don't think there's any suggestion the Director General has been less than than honest. No, but what we saw, if we go back to the summer, and the the country was convulsed by this for weeks at a time, was that... um, Backhurst was presented almost as a white knight that was going to clear everything up. Look at the exchange he had with one of the members of the committee where he said first that he could not reveal what the uh, figure was for uh, one of the senior RTE people who had departed. And then two minutes later, he just blurts it out. I mean, that's well, just he was the reminded that he was public relations he, he, management. He was reminded that he was uh, speaking under privilege and that he was also, I think, under oath. So clearly. He should have known that before he went in. And if he had been well prepared, we wouldn't have seen that kind of fiasco unfold. I think it was also notable that some of the people who left took no packages at all, while others uh, are now the subject of this intense interrogation because they did. Like anybody, well, yeah, anybody no, will tell no, you that. No, let's. I'm, I'm not defending RT in any way here. Sure. Okay, I just want us to be clear and fair on everything. Geraldine O'Leary was close to retirement anyway, right? Paula Maluli left, was kind of as nothing to do with any of this, left to pursue another opportunity of her own volition. What we understand about Simon Coveney is that he was... Rory Coveney. Pre- he was, Rory Coveney uh, could, <laughs> was prevailed upon, or it was suggested that it would be best that he leave the organisation. So the, uh, my point is there are different circumstances for all the various yeah, people. But there also seem to be different rules for people at senior levels in RTE compared to others in RTE and compared to other people in the public sector. For example, if you're a, a teacher or a head mistress or headmaster, or if you're a university lecturer, you have to spend at least 35 years in the system paying into it before you get anything comparable to the golden handshake that Mr. Coveney apparently received when he left. There's a real problem there. And for the Director General for RTE, there's this kind of salami slicing that's going on. In other words, if you don't front up and reveal everything, this is going to go on and on, and it's going to continue damaging the credibility of RTE and and of public sector. He is taking legal advice in in a, in a, in, a, in the wish to be more transparent. Um, <coughs> Alison, I agree with you there, and I do kind of slightly disagree with Fintan in a way that yes, we do still need to be talking about this. It is what everybody's talking about. There's still a serious lack of clarity with a lot of issues. I feel like we should possibly have a HR expert here telling us or or te- reminding RT what the differences were between retirement, redundancy, and resignation because there seem to be some areas where it's quite fudged where how an exit package can be given to somebody where there is uh, 
not technically a redundancy. So their question well, is... Well, the role was made redundant, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I understand that. But uh, there does seem to be a lack of clarity, I suppose, with those. And I, look, I, my sympathies do lie with Kevin Backhurst. He did want to come in as a new broom, but I think there's going to be a huge area now where we're going. this is going to, to travel for a long time. You look at the likes of the Business Post, some of the... where Catherine Martin's looking for a cap, possibly, on further... Um, exit packages or redundancies. How is that going to happen, I wonder, when I I look at the statistics in the Business Post? 84 people in uh, RTE are are currently on salaries between 108,000 and 275,000. With a cap on that, there have precedences that have now been set with the likes of the 450,000 euro exit package. So I'm not, (laughs) I'm a journalist, I don't do figures, but I'm looking at roughly... That if you're giving those people two years... Yes, two years, you're looking at 25 million euro. Where is that going to come from? And that is why why people on the street are talking about this is state, this is our money, it's state money so therefore it's our money who's going to pay for that 25 million in order to make a 10 million euro saving but I mean if you were talking okay, about I'm the not private sure about sector your figures there, but anyway, yeah. okay. if you were yeah, talking about the private sector when there is redundancies post. and I know this from talking to people that I know who have been made redundant that when their redundancy offer is put on the table you get X amount for however many years of service capped at X number of years so that you don't end up with these huge big redundancy issues and these massive massive packages and I mean I think Catherine Martin might have a point in the business post about the idea of capping these because then where does it stop? And I mean, if you can do it in the private sector, you can certainly do it in the public sector where it's taxpayers' money we're talking about here. Fintan, you picked as well, Conor Skeen has a piece, uh, TV licence or not, we still have to fund RTE despite its travails. Yeah, there's a couple of pieces I thought which were very interesting. That was... That that was... um, That is consistent with what I think most people have been saying, that ultimately even those who are most critical have, since this all started, have said, we do need public ser- a public service broadcaster. It serves a very important purpose. So Connor's, Connor's um, article or column addresses that and addresses the fundamentals of how that, you know, how important that is. There's also a piece um, in the Sunday Business Post. Um, excuse me, Brendan. Um, oh yeah, this is uh, by Cornell Thomas, by Cornel fear Thomas, no fee, cabinet yeah. split over uh, w- w- licence fee. Which is actually very interesting and relates directly then to Connor's article because ultimately what we're looking at is a government that seems to be quite split in terms of what they think is the correct funding model. Now I have argued before that we can think about the funding model before we decide what it is we want to fund. So we have to think about the structure of RTE, what RTE should be going forward before we decide on how to fund it. But in terms of the funding, what's quite interesting is in terms of the three different options, um, and there's sort of two and a half really, one is licence fee, but it's the way in which the licence fee would be collected. There's a difference of... A lower licence fee, but collected by the revenue. By the revenue, correct or the direct funding, that um, the the Taoiseach and the uh, Taunashta have different views. But the two people in in charge of the public finances, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue, are fixed on, in so far as Colonel Thomas is reporting it this morning, are fixed on staying with the existing model. They're powerful men... (laughs) They know okay. the entrails of, of public finances. So they are transcending the, the party it, political it, it, it would appear. Yeah. yeah, OK. Um, 
Brendan, I think we need also just need to be conscious of the fact that Ireland has one of the healthiest media landscapes in the world. We are ranked second by Reporters Without Borders in the press freedom ranks globally. And that's an extraordinary thing when you think about the challenges that misinformation and disinformation presents. So there's an element here of be careful what you wish for. I think RTE has had done an extraordinarily good job over the years in respect of public Um, investigations of all kinds. And whatever happens in the future and whatever the funding model is going to be, it can't do anything, I think, that actually disturbs that landscape that we have, which we should all, I think, be very appreciative of. Okay, and, and look, I think people have maybe, maybe lost trust in, in or, or that if trust has been broken in RT, I don't think it's with the journalists or the people who work here is, has been a general uh, a thing that everyone has agreed in all this. Uh, really agree with panellists. Complete media distraction now, says this texter. Children's hospital, housing, health, government delighted, spotlight is off them. Uh, Someone else says nobody I listen to in Mullingar is talking about RT and all this. They talk about Gaza, Russia, housing. Okay, to that end, another uh, big talking point this week, Alison, was um, Drogheda and a plan to house 500 asylum seekers uh, in the big hotel in the centre of Drogheda town, the D Hotel. Um, You're uh, local up there. It's my beat, indeed. So... um, what did you uh, pick out today on it? There's, I think the Sunday Times, page two, the Julianne Corr piece. Yeah, the Sunday Times is pretty much the only mention of it uh, in today's papers, which is, I suppose is a bit a bit of a blow as well to, to Drogheda because it is an, a massive issue. It, it has a very complex, a very nuanced side to it, which is that it is the only accommodation, the only large-scale accommodation in Drogheda. Uh, the other hotels. Uh, There's one hotel with 17 beds. That's what we're dealing with, with a town of 50,000 people at the moment. And uh, taking away 113 beds is, I mean, the figures that are being bandied about are probably not wrong, about 5 million to the local economy. There is going to be no tourism. There is going to be no, you can't hold your wedding in Drogheda. Uh, You can't have people come and stay in Drogheda. Drogheda was on its knees not so long ago because of a drugs feud. Massive amount of work has been done to, to pick that back up, to plough money back into the economy, to plough confidence and reputation back into the into the town. Only last week, uh, Marks and Spencer pulled out, which was a loss of 57 jobs, but a greater loss to the town in the fact that, again, something else is being removed. And the next day, the only large hotel in the town is now going to be effectively closed down. Yes, there's a hue and cry, but it is not an anti-immigration hue and cry, which is the point that everybody's making. There were distractions with a, a political rally, which was not a protest. It was a political rally, which is not being supported by any of the elected representatives or the vast majority of people in Drogheda. So what we're left... So with people have come in, let's not get too mm, specific here, but yeah. people have come in and attempted to... Um, to layer a different complexion on this, have they, from outside? Well, yes, a vast majority okay. from outside, but some some local uh, support to it. But it, it's a smokescreen. It's a distraction to what the actual problem is, which is an economic problem. Uh, Drogheda has been incredibly welcoming to asylum seekers and refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees as well. Um, a vast majority of our uh, accommodation, both public and private, is now um, used up. Um, so without this... Without this hotel, basically, Drogheda is going to be decimated as far as tourism, as far as economy, as far as local economy. And that is the issue. There was no public consultation. I was aware 
that this may be happening. There were rumours in the town, which mean, I find it very hard to believe that no public representatives didn't hear about this because it was it was unsubstantiated and couldn't be confirmed. But at the right, same so time, it was being, being careful told. not to listen to rumours. Well, as exactly, well. you don't yeah. want to listen to rumours exactly for those uh, those reasons. But I believe now everybody wants to, to speak to to the minister about it. Local representatives, local TDs, um, business the chamber, etc., all want a meeting because this should not have been your word on the front of the Indo today, which I agree with, a fait accompli, it was pushed through. Uh, it's, a, it's a commercial um, contract. We know that and probably highly necessary. And the, peop- but the, and the, but and the, the people who, who own the hotel are saying we're doing this for two years with a view to doing up the hotel with a view to the long term of, of this Listen, if there was that much money, build modular units so that we can house 500 people. Uh, We have, Drogheda is awash with vacant properties, with derelict properties. Put that money into regeneration. Let us have a hotel, even 50% accommodation now would would suit. Louise, this does seem different to uh, a lot of the other uh, issues about asylum accommodation that have arisen around the country. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's really the first time that we've had legitimate concerns that perhaps haven't been overshadowed by the so-called far right and that anti-immigrant sentiment. And I mean, the tricky thing about situations like this is who's right and who's wrong. And it's very hard to see who's right and who's wrong. You know, the, the locals have genuine concerns about their hotel. That's fine. The hotel owners want to make a bit of money and do up the hotel. That's fine. The government has been offered this accommodation centre that can accommodate 500 people at a time when we've over a thousand on the street. And this is the thing. And, you know, everyone has their reasons and you can't necessarily say that anyone is right or wrong. But I think what it underlines is the approach that the government has taken to this crisis and the fact that we're two years into the war in Ukraine this year. So we're going into the third year of this crisis of having to accommodate people. And yet we don't seem to have learned anything Roger Gorman for the last number of weeks is meant to be bringing a plan to Cabinet to highlight how we're going to build six accommodation centres so that we can move away from the private sector so that there can be state-owned accommodation so that we don't have the issues like we had in Drogheda or Did in Ross Did that memo, there was a memo brought and, and that it was sent back for more detail to be put in? Perhaps. And I yeah. think this is one of the other issues that we're going to have with this memo or this white paper is that it's going to say we're going, we need six accommodation centres that's subject to change. We don't know where they're going to be. We don't know when they're going to be opened. We don't know if they're going to be built, acquired, leased. We don't know where they're coming from. So we know that he's bringing this plan, Minister O'Gorman. We don't know exactly what it's going to contain. And I mean, we're so far into this crisis now. We have over... We've a couple of hundred, if not a thousand people sleeping on the streets who have come here seeking protection. And it's still the government seems to be grappling with this. And I think the situation in Drogheda, really, we're going to see that repeated in a lot of places where people are genuinely concerned about their local economy okay. if the government don't actually pull the finger out here and get moving on this. Fintan, you, you picked that piece as well. I mean, Louise does make an interesting point. Everybody's right and nobody's right. Like, this, there, there is no simple answer to this, is there? There isn't. Um, I mean... I don't know how many years ago it was the town of Uttarard was in the public uh, consciousness because of of objections to a a hotel being used uh, to um, look after migrants and asylum seekers. It is a very, as Louise has said, it's a very complex issue which, you know, needs a lot of attention. But it's not getting attention, again, where it needs to get attention at legislative level. And it's way, way past time that we had a master plan, maybe an unfortunate term to use, but a master plan to address 
what we know with certainty is going to be a greater influx of people to this wealthy nation and they will come here by any means they can and that's going to be significantly augmented by the climate crisis. The numbers coming here, and not just here, but to the Northern Hemisphere, as a result of the climate crisis, in the next 10, 20, 30 years, is going to be beyond what we can conceive of right now. And we will have a responsibility to care for those people. And therefore, we need to plan long term. But we don't do it. Gary Murphy, so what, in, Gary Murphy in the newspaper in his column this morning talks about this fundamental problem with the children's hospital. We didn't plan. We don't so, plan so about public do, service broadcasting. What does it look like? Is I it, don't know it what it looks camps? like, Brendan. What I, no, what, what, I, what I know is that year after year, many people have been calling for, for such a plan. Going way back, Catherine McGuinness in 2008, 2009, the former Supreme Court judge, referred to the fact that we would need to plan for this or otherwise we were going to face a Magdalene Laundries type scenario into the future because we won't have prepared for it in a manner which allows us care for people. But that must be done in a way which is consistent with the needs of the people of Drada or the people of Uttarard. And it must be done in a manner which is caring and sensitive to all of the different needs. Otherwise, those who are trying to stir trouble, those on the far right, and they are increasing in number. I'm chairman of Sport Against Racism in Ireland. The, there is a profound increase in racism in this country and incidents of racism. And a, a recent EU report made this very clear about Ireland. So okay. it's, it's a highly complex problem, but it doesn't get dealt with with a, you know, a, a report by a minister and saying, let's deal with this, with the elastoplast that's going to deal with the problem in Drogheda or Uttarard or wherever. John O'Brien, your thoughts? I think Fintan is right. And I think Gary Murphy's column in uh, The Times today also uh, highlights this, that when government really needs to address a crisis like COVID, for example, all of the arms of the state can be thrown at it and with great success. But there are all these other problems that we're prepared to put on the long finger and only put band-aids on wherever it's necessary. But I, I, just to take one issue within what is a very complex kind of architecture, um, dereliction. If we go back to the controversy in Ross Gray, it's significantly smaller than Drogheda. But um, when reporters went in there, when all of that was happening, they found that about 15% of the buildings in Ross Gray were derelict. So why not an audit of dereliction uh, around the country? And you put the measures in place as soon as possible to get those properties back on the market so that they can be used. And it'll have all kinds of other positive impacts on towns and villages as yeah. well. But that's just one You see, one it feels measure. like we've been talking about dereliction for a long time and that it feels like it should be simple. And then it seems yep. that when it gets into the detail of anything, suddenly it becomes incredibly complex. And I guess, der you know, doing up derelict houses is also more complex than we think. Alison, to, to go back to Drogheda before we leave this, what is the atmosphere like now in Drogheda? How are people feeling? And, and wh what's the likely outcome of all this, do you think? The overarching feeling is still one of anger, anger that there was no consultation before this, uh, anger that there was a, a pen stroke rather than actually coming to see what the impact, the economic impact would be of something like this. It was a very easy 
decision, obviously, for somebody to make. This solution was put forward. Can't blame the hotel owners. They buy in good faith. They're, you know, the, the ability is there for it to be used. You can't, certainly can't lay the blame at their door. But looking at the wider picture, these things cannot be taken just with a pen stroke. Come down, talk, talk to the local representatives, talk to the Louth TDs, see what kind of an impact it will have, not for the people who will arrive, but for the people who are actually living there. Does that there's seem a two to be year, happening now? There's a two year waiting list in Drogheda to get a GP, not an appointment with them, to actually get a GP. Seven and a half thousand houses are being built at the moment. So Drogheda is a place that desperately needs more hotel accommodation, more infrastructure. So taking it away from the people at the moment is a huge, huge disaster. And I believe there are going to be talks now next week to possibly 50% of the uh, occupancy will be for tourism. But we've got a big, Drogheda's first comedy festival is happening next weekend and they've stopped using the D Hotel as a venue. There are going to be no beds for people to come to that festival. A four-day St. Patrick's Day festival, no beds for people to come and stay. Looking towards the summer, the Arts Festival, I can go on and on and on. So this is something that... It's a, it's an urgency uh, needed to address this, which I don't think is happening at the moment. OK, we'll take a break. Louise Byrne, John O'Brien, Fintan Drury and Alison Common staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Louise Byrne, John O'Brien, Fintan Drury and Alison Common are still with us. And I, I cut you off earlier, Fintan Drury, so I promised you we could come back for one minute to the this kind of unseemly uh, row between the HSE and the John and God's services. Yeah, and Maeve Sheehan covers it, I think, very well in the Sunday Independent this morning. Uh, it's a decision by John and God's to withdraw from providing services to 8,000 young people and children and and adults with disability. And there's quotes from Anne Rabbit, the the minister responsible, um, you know, saying we've just come out of a very difficult budgetary process. Well, you know, this country is awash with money. And if we cannot find a way between the agency being deployed by the government, in this case, John O'God, and the government itself, the HSE, of making sure that among the most vulnerable people in our society, 8,000 adults and children with different forms of disability and their families cannot be protected. It comes back to the same fundamental problem. Lack of planning, lack of planning, lack of planning. Okay, now the HSE are adamant that they are offering the John of Gods enough money to function that John of Gods has been uh, has been uh, balancing the books for the last few years and everything. So look, I presume what we're seeing here is negotiations out loud and you would hope that be, uh, that uh, it will come to some agreement because there is terrible uh, yeah. worry out there among families um, about the prospect of like the it could be the one bit of stability that a lot of these people have in life. Okay, we'll move on to uh, let, let everybody talk about how old Joe Biden is for a minute. Um, Alison, you picked uh, there's a really interesting uh, two pieces in the mail on Sunday based on uh, new opinion polling that's been done. But basically, the headline here, Glenn Owen, Democrats win if they dump Biden. I know. Uh, it is quite worrying, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think Biden's probably looking over his shoulder at the moment as well. But uh, with with Nikki Haley still being sort of slightly in the mix, it's very worrying that they would pick anybody else over 
Biden except her and then basically we'll pick Trump if it's Biden. So that's where we stand in the, in the US the whole at the thing moment. And the about Biden is meant to be that he's the, he's the one person who can beat Trump. I'm the one who's qualified to do it. I've done it before and everything. John O'Brennan, is there any alternative to Biden at this stage in the game? I don't think there is, to be honest. Um, Kamala Harris remains a figure that just doesn't command serious attention across the Democratic Party, let alone across the electorate. But I think it was, in many ways, a good week for Biden and a good week for the Democrats. Just starting with the Democrats, they won back the seat that you remember the very controversial George Santos won from them in New York this week. And the interesting thing about that candidate was he ran almost solely on migration. Now, you'll remember that in previous weeks, the Republicans in Capitol Hill, they were blocking this big omnibus bill that would provide aid to Israel to Ukraine, but also, crucially, new measures to tackle the border crisis. And bizarrely, because the Republicans are the party of law and order, they were blocking it. And they were blocking it because it was bad for Trump. And he was insisting that they block it because he wants to ensure that the migration issue remains alive all the way through the general election campaign. But in New York, this candidate ran specifically by highlighting what the Republicans were doing to block the migration issues. And of course, this includes also Republican governors, some of them sending migrants to New York. Yeah, at different New York points in time. had a similar issues and conversations going on to what we did a few yeah. short months ago. I think they got 100,000 of them uh, similar to us yeah. in the course of, of some months. And there was all these conversations going on about services, where do we put them, all that. That's New yeah. York couldn't yeah. handle But it's, it. it's almost counterintuitive in a way that the Democrats could run and win on the migration issue because that's supposed to be the preserve of the right and the far right. But the other thing... So you found a bit week, of hope there, yeah. There is a bit of hope. Mm. And remember that there are other issues like abortion, for example, Roe versus Wade, wherever it's been on the ballot at state level or district level, the Democrats have won and even Republican women large numbers of them, even Trump supporters, they don't like the reversal of Roe versus Wade. And when it's on the ballot, inevitably Democrats will win. But the other thing that happened this week, of course, was Trump. That extraordinary loss that he had on Friday in that courtroom in New York, where the Trump organization was basically uh, uh, convicted of serial fraud, they were fined 350 odd million dollars. That's going to inevitably, with penalties and interest, turn into 450 million. This is in addition to the 85 million he has to give E. Jean Carroll in that defamation case. And he's also not fit to do business in New York anymore for uh, two years. And his sons are banned for a number of years. And maybe this is the reason that he was out yesterday campaigning, selling these extraordinarily gaudy gold sneakers for $400 a pop in a desperate effort to raise money to pay these bills. Fintan. But however much we might, you know, become concerned about politics here or in the UK or in Europe, the idea that somebody who can be barred from serving as a director of a company for three years in a state in the United States can run for president of the United States is truly shocking. Uh, you know, Biden, Biden is way past his sell-by date. For me, I, I happened to cover the 1984 presidential election between Reagan and Mondale that for was RTE. Election, uh, Reagan's age became an issue just before the election, which, there, didn't which it? was the point, you know, and I was I was a young journalist then. Um, and it is 
really alarming to think that the United States, 40 years on, what has happened to the United States that the best they can do is this very aged, clearly not capable uh, president who's in office right now or somebody who is a serial liar who has previously served very badly as president of the United but States. But I would say, Fenton, you're pointing to the optics, and I absolutely agree with you in the opinion polls support what you're saying, but we should also recognise Biden has been the single most consequential president of the United States for what he's got done since he's been president, in my view, since at least Lyndon Johnson. Okay, and, 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 the, econ- and the economy is, is, is roaring. Economy they can't, is doing they can't really stop well. it. Right? And the economy yeah. always matters, Brendan, in a presidential election. And I'm convinced okay. that it will come to Biden's rescue at so, some point. So okay, can, can, I, can I keep moving? Because, Louise, you picked um, Marion McKeown's piece, which br- kind of brings us on to the next topic of Gaza, that Biden squanders support and stature as US risks becoming an outlier on Israel. Yeah, and I think this is actually a really interesting piece for Mary McCone because we've heard all week with Benjamin Netanyahu's proposal, perhaps, or threat maybe, um, that he is going to launch an offensive in Rafa. The President Biden has intervened. He's told him that there needs to be an exit plan in place and to get these people out safely. And Mary McCone saying, well, is that actually being overstated, the level of intervention that Joe Biden has had? And I mean, I think it's interesting because in that piece, she was descri- he was described, Joe Biden, as an election year liability. And there was some st- statistics in that that said three quarters of 18 to 29 year olds disagree with how Biden is handling the situation in Israel. And that is, of course a key demographic and the for the Democrats. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, if he wants to get those people back on side, how he is communicating with Israel, how he's looking at the situation in Israel has to change because I think it is very, very clear now as this situation goes into its fourth, its fifth, its sixth, maybe, please God, not any longer, but we don't know how long this is going to last. Joe Biden is really the only one with any sway here over Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think it really does beggar questions about why he's not being stronger are we afraid of Israel? Why is he not making an intervention? We've seen how he reacted to the war in Russia. Why are we not having the same reaction to this war in Gaza? Okay, Uh, I'm going to take another break now. uh, So our panel will stay with us and we'll be back very shortly. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel is still with us. Louise Byrne, John O'Brien, Fintan Drury and Alison Common. And before we get to uh, Russia itself and Alexei Navalny and that, John O'Brien, um, the Irish uh, relationship with Russia. So you've picked the Sunday Times. John Mooney is writing, as he has been writing about for a while, about diplomatic channels to the Kremlin stay open. But inside, he has a, a, a bigger piece about the Russian operation in Ireland, essentially. And I'm trusting that you are, know enough about this and are credible enough about this to tell us about it without uh, sensationalising it or anything. Yeah. John Mooney has done extraordinary work over the years on security issues, but particularly on this one. And what he exposes, I think, is this sort of notion, I think, that many people in Ireland have because of our military neutrality, that big powers like Russia aren't interested in us. This is far from the case, as we saw with those Russian incursions into our territorial waters at different points in recent years. We saw it also in the effort made by the embassy to extend the uh, Orwell Road 
uh, premises, the strong suspicion that they were using it for spying on the high-tech multinational sector in Dublin in particular. But in John's piece today, he also points out that Dublin is being used as a base to infiltrate other jurisdictions in Europe and sometimes almost with impunity. And we have very few of the tools that many other European states have and are deploying to try and combat those Russian activities. So we he's really saying... Not ta- we're not taking this seriously. We're kind exactly. of not taking ourselves seriously. If we think this sounds like, like, like you know, spy stuff, like, sure, this isn't real. This is all real. Like, this and is we, all we real. Up, I, yeah? I can assure you, Brendan, viewed from Moscow, Ireland is not a neutral state. We are very much seen as part of the West... I noted also yesterday that the Taoiseach was in Munich at the Munich Security Conference, the most important such conference in the world. I think it was good that he was there. But he he claimed yesterday, amongst other things, that, um, you know, Ireland was taking defence seriously. I think many people when we spend 0.2% of GDP on defence compared to the 2% that most countries in Europe do, they just don't take this stuff seriously. I think seriously. in fairness, he said we do contribute in other ways to an unbroken record of, is it 35 years or, or more of peacekeeping? And he said we also have a growing foreign aid budget and that that, that, that is a way that we... Well, that's do it. one part. He did also talk about as well... I, I think a conversation that started with a lot of kind of acrimony around the the, uh, the travelling roadshow, which was not about neutrality, but about defence, but now has become a mainstream part of the conversation where the T-shirt talked about, look, the nature of defence has changed. So it does sound like they're awake to it. He talked about misinformation and all of that kind of I stuff. I would argue that we are barely awake to it. The scale of geopolitical change has just been extraordinary and we still have our head literally and figuratively buried in the sand. We have to wake up to these changes and to the fact that Ireland has responsibilities and obligations as a key part of the global technological structure and as part of the European Union. And we should firstly ensure that our own capacity to defend ourselves improves. I'm glad the government is addressing this, but we are way behind the curve and we need to do vastly more. Okay. We've only, okay. For example, this week we saw that there was only one naval ship that was available to put to sea. That has to come to an end. Okay. And then on the related matter of if we doubted what Russia is capable of, uh, Alison Common, I suppose we, we kind of got, we, the last few days, we got a good sign of where that country is at with the the Alexei Navalny's death, uh, whether it was a slow murder or a fast murder. Um, you picked uh, a piece in the Sunday Times, Peter Conradi writing a, about this polar wolf camp. Yes, uh, I think, as you said, it's a stark reminder of just what is out there and what can happen on our soil, on any soil, uh, when it comes to the likes of opposing uh, Russia. Um, The camp looks bad enough, my goodness, if you were going to be sent there for the rest of your life for nefarious reasons or for whatever reasons. But we are not not allowed to talk to cellmates. Absolutely. Constant light on them. That's it. made to line out Propaganda. in the morning without, we're told he was warm made to watch, uh, to watch I suppose propaganda material until perhaps he was brainwashed or would, would uh, agree to it or believe it but now we're finding that he well, a victim of sudden death syndrome. Yeah, which his, is, su- it, his sudden death was caused by sudden death seems he, to be the story like I mean Exactly and yeah. how do we even know he's dead? I'm 
presume we, we he is dead, yeah. but uh, as presume one of the main oppositions, but we haven't seen yet. the body. Yeah. What we have, we have a death uh, death certificate. Can we believe that? I suppose. Uh, for him, and I've watched videos of him, I've watched uh, him speak over the couple of years, he knew he was a dead man walking. He was an incredibly courage- courageous man because of that. He didn't hide or run. He ran towards it. But now he is a dead man. And does that mean that his message dies with it? Does the opposition die with it? That's going to the major question now is, is can that opposition survive yeah. without him as the figurehead? Um, Fintan, like th- this is chilling stuff. I mean, when, when you chilling. get a glimpse into it, it's, it's the Russia of the gulags and Stalin and the rest of it, isn't it? Like, are we back to that? I think we are, I think, but I think we have been for, for quite some time. I don't think there's any great surprise. I think what one of the pieces that was really interesting to read this morning is is by Jason Corcoran in the Sunday Independent, who, who interviewed uh, Navalny. I think was quite friendly. When and seems to be quite friendly Russia, with him. Yeah. And so you get a real personal insight into uh, the man um, who was clearly, I mean, extraordinarily brave. But I don't think what we've seen through his death and through the coverage of how he was being treated, um, I don't think we've seen anything that is surprising about the regime under Putin. I think that what we're seeing in Ukraine is clearly evidence of, of somebody who has uh, an absolute belief in his right to do whatever he wishes. Um, and I think that, you know, the interesting thing about that, if you juxtaposition Gaza and, and Ukraine, you look at Netanyahu and you wonder about the extent to which one of these individuals is an absolute pariah in the West, the other isn't. And you wonder why that is. And I think that goes to deep-rooted... Uh, um, views within the the Western political milieu, which has a very difficult, is very, is, has a very different attitude to people in the Arab world, in the Middle East, has not been ever okay. able to now, really grasp look, the, is, the problem. It, it, we, we might not like who's who's been elected into government in, in Israel right now and that coalition, but Israel is a, a democracy in a way that Russia isn't. I mean, I actually, well, I heard last night the results of the uh, Russian presidential election, even though it hasn't happened yet. Apparently, they are going to bring it in over 80% because it got 77% the last time. They're going to bring it in over 80 because that's what it'll need to be to show that people support the war. Um, can I ask you, John O'Brennan, two questions? One is, does Navalny's death, does, it, does dissent die with him in a sense? Or is there any chance that, a, as I heard someone say, a legend is now born, a martyr is now born, and that even if it takes some time that people galvanise around that? Well, Navalny was an extraordinary figure in all kinds of ways. But it is simply untrue to suggest that there is any kind of opposition in Russia currently. There hasn't been for a long time because from the moment he came to office in the final days of 1999, Putin began filleting out, hollowing out the fragile kind of institutions that had emerged after the Soviet period. Now, that's gone exponentially step by step to the point where Russia is now the most extremely repressive kind of place. And it, there are direct comparisons with the era of the Gulag and everything that you mentioned at the outset. I think Navalny, however, represents hope 
Um, he was a very hopeful figure. And even in his last court appearance, the day before his death was announced, you may have seen that he was poking fun at the judge and saying, you're costing me huge amounts of money because I keep having to come back to court. And I know that you don't like it as much as uh, other people do. But um, it was typical of the way in which his public appearances went. And that was a threat to the regime because the one thing he demonstrated was this lack of fear. And for mm. people like Putin, that's the one thing they cannot bear because if he's saying, and I was really struck last night seeing a piece, an 82-year-old Russian woman uh, who referred to Putin as a thief and a cancer, and she was uh, saying things I think that a lot of Russians would love to be able to say, but feel they can't possibly say because of the extraordinarily repressive apparatus that has grown back under Putin. So <laughs> in the short term, we... there really isn't hope, but in the longer okay. term, Navalny represents the hope that okay. Russia can evolve. And, and, and then they've we, arrested we, 200 people who, who went to place flowers uh, in, I in, think in his more, memory. More, more. now, 300 right. odd, yeah. But they, they seem to be standing back yeah. initially and then day two they they went in and some, some of them are quite rough looking. Briefly, John O'Brien, um, we, so then there's all this kind of sabre rattling is the wrong word for it, but all the Western people out at Munich saying, you know, Putin must be held accountable for this. Russia must explain this and all that. But like, is there anything left to do? Is there anything we can do well, just I was really struck by some of the most experienced commentators who were at Munich of the last few days saying how depressing the atmosphere there was even before Navalny's death was announced. And part of it is because Western leaders haven't been forceful enough in their response. I was struck again yesterday seeing that the president of the Czech Republic is going to buy huge amounts of ammunition outside of Europe to supply Ukraine with at a point where the bill in Washington is stuck. The Americans haven't supplied any aid since last December. France is actively preventing other European countries from buying aid from South Korea, ammunition from South Korea, because they're trying to look after the interests of the French arms industry. Okay. So there are all these okay. issues that in Europe mean that Putin was emboldened. He would never have killed Navalny if he didn't feel that all of the cards are his at the moment internationally okay. because of these problems in Europe and Washington. Alison Common, we've about 30 seconds left and I want to end on a hopeful note because that was all a bit grim. It was very it. grim. But listen, imagine a world in which a stingray <laughs> ah, Charlotte. Can have, an, can have an immaculate conception. Honestly, yes. Uh, Charlotte the Stingray in North Carolina. And she's a queer age now. She's, a, you know, she's 11 or 12 years of age, which I'm told in Stingray years is quite advanced. And lo and behold, they thought she was putting on a bit of tubby weight. Nope, she's having babies or pups or whatever they're called. But the sting in the tale is, is that there was no male near Charlotte, no male stingray at, at any rate. And apparently they're not able to reproduce by themselves. But there were five sharks hanging around the tank not so long ago. But we're told that sharks and stingray cannot mate. So I suppose they'll just have to wait and see what comes okay. out. Is it little stingrays well, or little sharks? Yeah, or sting sharks. Sting okay. sharks. So listen, I suppose they, let's go, let's try and come away from it all with the thought that there is always hope and the impossible can always happen. Thank you very much to our panel this morning. Louise Byrne, political correspondent with the Mirror. John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at Maynooth University. Fintan Drury, CEO of Platinum One and columnist with The Currency and journalist Alison Common. 